0: So, why don't I read the passage, Nehemiah 10, and I'll pray and we'll we'll get into it. Now, those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, and uh, John's allowed me to skip the names. You might have been hoping for me to run through all those (laughs) Hebrew names, but I haven't brushed up on my ancient Hebrew very well, so... You can have a try if you want, Josh. <laughs> so then from verse, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day and we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves, to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground, and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees, year by year, to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who are ministering in the house of our God, to bring the firstfruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And we will not neglect the house of our God. Father, what a blessed and joyous thing it is to be able to come together this morning as your people, as your church. It doesn't matter about the building, Father. We're here in faith. We're here expectantly waiting on you. Thank you that we can worship you with our time, with our bodies. Thank you that you're here dwelling in our midst and you want to speak to us. You want to reveal yourself to us. And so I pray this time in your word, you use it for your glory to challenge us and stretch us as your people, to expose us, and to show us how we can love you more. And we pray your blessing on this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we've been, <coughs> we've been going through Nehemiah uh, <coughs> as a series over the past few weeks, a few more chapters to go. We've been looking at this theme of restoration, and so far in Nehemiah we've been looking at the restoration of physical things. We've seen the walls rebuilt. Later on in Nehemiah we're looking at God restoring something more important than just physical buildings, walls, just a stone temple. We're looking at the idea of God restoring his people and so the idea of Nehemiah 10 this morning is restoring God's house. Now let's play a bit of catch up in Nehemiah 10 which John took last week we saw how the Israelites had come together for a time of fasting, to be in the Word, for for, for worship. They spent a quarter of the day doing each of these things. And the response to that was open prayer. It was the longest, one of the longest prayers in the Bible was prayed out by the leaders, by the Levites. And it was a a summary of just how faithful God had been to Israel, everything that he had done. And what we see at the end in, in verse 38 of Nehemiah 9 is the people saying and because of all this we make a sure covenant and write it our leaders our levites and our priests seal it you see it's a response to god to have our commitment to have our obedient god is the initiator no one's ever been looking after god but he's been searching them out from before creation of the world. We see the Israelites responding in worship, in praise, having seen how good God is, having remembered everything he's done, being so thankful. What we see in Nehemiah 10 is their response and that's why we have the intentional um, coffee break after the worship. We see that as a continuation of, of the worship, seeing how good God is and wanting to share that with one another. It's not just about getting good coffee, it is about showing Jesus to one another. and so. We continue in worship, even as we look at the word. Don't turn off your minds, engage them. This isn't a lecture, but it is one of the most important things you could be learning about. So, here in Nehemiah 10, (coughs) a lot of it is about the temple which has been restored by the work of (coughs) of Ezra and Israel. What we learn in the New Testament as it says in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. Thank you, Josh. (laughs) Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is something that the people back in Israel, back in 400 BC with Nehemiah leading them, didn't quite get yet. They understood that God was in a physical place. They had to come and bring sacrifice and worship to him there. The amazing reality of being believers nowadays is that God isn't just in a building or in a place. Scripture talks about how We are his dwelling place. If you are a believer in Jesus, he's given you his Holy Spirit. You have the holiest of holies inside you. You've been made pure. That's why God is able to come and dwell inside you. We, together, as a group, as the body of God, of Jesus, are being built together. So that's our idea this morning, is that God is restoring his people and his church, not just physically, but his spiritual church, as we commit. So we've got this wonderful list, which I skipped over, verses 1 to 27. It's a a list of names. It's all the people who wanted to sign this covenant, this agreement, this vow that the Israelites said. Let's not just use our words and our mouth to say, God is so good, he's deserving of everything, let's respond. They said, let's do something a little bit more than that. Let's write our names, let's affix a seal to it, let's stamp our name on this document. What do we notice uh, about the names? I, I, I've dug into who, who's, who's written down a bit. The first name is Nehemiah. It's, it's important that the people who God places in his body who are the leaders, who are the men with the vision, the people who God calls and, and directs, it's important that they commit, just like everybody else, that they say, I'm not doing this for my own personal status or, or gain Nehemiah could have been in the position to take everybody's money and say God wants you to give a lot of money to the to the church and take it all and do what he wanted with it and live a luxurious life no he was he was committing to God's service to his temple there is a mix here there's not just the leaders of the church there's not just priests there's ordinary people toward the end of the list there's just there's names of, of families of households God calls all kinds of people to be committed in his church whatever gifts you've got and it is a good thing to have their names written down like this it meant they could be held to some kind of accountability it meant they could be held to their promise it was it wasn't just vain words they were speaking they had it written down they had it recorded what they wanted to do for God and other people could join in with that and and call them out where they were doing well and encourage them if they were doing well Call them out if they were not sticking to the word. Have you got people who you can call yourself personally accountable to, who are watching your backs in how you commit to God and helping you when you waver in that commitment? So after Nehemiah, we do have the a list of names of the priests, because it says there in verse 8, these were the priests. So after the people who God places in charge, there's also those who are who help out the work of the Church. And it's a good thing to commit to the work of the Church. It's a good thing to be a servant. That's why we're called Servants Church. <coughs> because we belong to Jesus. He's the one who served us originally and he wants that commitment from us to say, what can we give to him? We can give him our our time and our energy on a Sunday throughout the week. Thankfully for us, as it says in Colossians 1, verses 17 and 18, (coughs) he, now that's speaking of Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Don't think that when you come to church, or indeed when you're at work in the rest of the world, that the people above you, that the managers, the leaders, that that's all there is, that they're at the very top. The Bible says Jesus is head of the church. He is. Lord of your life, if you've committed to him. So when you have a desire to commit to work, to commit to earning money, to commit to serving the church, you don't have to get frustrated when you see the people above you who are supposed to be the examples, who are supposed to be the inspiration and the leadership, when you see their flaws and their errors, because they're only human. But thankfully for us, we've got Jesus at the top. He is the head and he led a perfect, humble and servant led life. He was the servant leader who didn't put himself first, but put everybody else first. And that's really what it means to lead. You might feel like God is calling you to take a step up in responsibility, into a a position to to move up in the church or in the rest of the world. He's calling you to do that in a servant-led way. Leading isn't about moving things forward yourself, it's about following Jesus. Leading is following. So after we see these important people, Nehemiah, governors, leaders, the list moves on in, in verses 9 and 10 to talk about the Levites, their, brother, their, bre- um, their brethren. And also that's, that's linked in verse 28 to the rest of the people, it says, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim. That's who's mentioned in verse 28. The ethanim there, temple servants, I looked up the word, porters, gatekeepers, really God has a place for everybody. You might not think you could stand up the front and talk, you might be terrified of public speaking, like I am. You might just be able to make the coffee, you might just be able to bring a word of encouragement to someone on a Sunday, send them a message throughout the week, you might be able to sing. It's good that Nehemiah lists the other kinds of people who are committed. It's not just the ones on show. It's everyone behind the scenes. It's everyone committing in teams. That is a good thing to commit. Think about how you could commit to a ministry, to a team. And no doubt these people got frustrated at times, thinking no one notices me, no one thanks me. What I do is never noticed on a Sunday or throughout the week. No one even knows that I do it. Why should I keep doing it? But as it says in Mark 10, verse 45, I think I've put the wrong quote there, So, but you'll know it because it's actually on our signs, so you should be able to correct me on this anyway. It's not in the Psalms. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our reason and our motivation for serving. It's not to look good. It's not for any attention. And no matter where you are on the ladder, no matter how high or low you feel like you are, Jesus already made himself as low as he could be so that he could come and serve us. If anyone desires our service and our love, it's God, but Jesus came so that he could serve us with his life and give it so that we are free to serve. And that being the case, see your ministry, whatever that is, whether that is just having a family, whether that is just coming to church regularly, see that as a life calling, see that as a ministry, as a vocation. God doesn't just want part of your time. He doesn't want the things you're involved in to just be an add-on. Oh yeah, and I go to church on a Sunday. He wants you to see that as your calling. Some people do get called to lead, to teach, to be a pastor. You can consider it a calling to put out the chairs when no one else did. You can consider it a calling to make sure there's enough water on a Sunday. Do it for Jesus. Now, so far, that's been a lot of talk about people strictly involved in church or ministry, but it goes so much wider than that. Towards the end of our list, from verses 14 to 27, it talks about the leaders of the people. And I did mention this earlier, that it's not just people who have a specific place, perhaps, a named position in God's church, these are just a list of names of ordinary people, these are just the heads of households, these are men, dads, who decided they'd also commit, and they're written down, because it does say in verse 28, it's everyone who is the rest of the people, all those who had separated themselves, it's not just about having a specific place in, in church. You can be a leader. You can minister just to yourself, to, to your spouse, to your, to your family. God wants that kind of commitment from you wherever you're at. At the very least, you have responsibility for yourself. At the very least, you're a leader of your own body. And God will start you there and he'll add to you and add to that responsibility and that leadership if you're committing to him. But that's an important point to bring out. It says there in verse 28, everyone who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. So don't think that I'm up here pressuring you, saying, right, come on, you need to give, you need to get involved in something. There's churches that overemphasise that commitment to service, and it can turn people away, it can turn people off. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know much about this God stuff yet, this Jesus stuff, we would say that the pressure isn't on you yet to have to commit. Don't feel like these people who signed a document. You don't come to church and we don't thrust the information card in your faith, although that is an area of commitment to grow in, I think. People do need to sign their information cards. But if you're new to this stuff, understand that it doesn't extend to you just yet. But Jesus did call a commitment to him. As it says in Luke 9 verses 23 to 25, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Coming to church isn't about being forced into some kind of commitment, it's about realising that God is committed to you. Since before you were born, he's known you and he sent his son to die so that you could have relationship with him, so that you could know God. So if that's the place you're in this morning, don't feel any pressure to commit to anything, but realise that Jesus is searching after you and he says, follow me. So we've looked at who committed, but now we move to verse 29. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. Let's ask, what is it we're actually committing to? We've seen who's committing, but don't you want to know what you're signing up for before you get into it? It says there in verse 29 that they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Don't let that put you off. The idea of the curse isn't like sign up for Jesus, for God, for church, or else there will be problems. There's going to be curses if you don't obey God. Fear the, the, the outcomes if you don't fall in line. The curse that is referenced there could well have been self-imposed at the time. It could have been the people saying there might be uh, discipline, there might be... Um, reprimanding if you if you broke that commitment that you'd signed to. And that is a good thing to have church discipline today. If you've committed your life to Christ, it is a good thing to recognise that the church will hold you to account. That There are times that people can fall out of line and need to be straightened up again to, to Jesus. But it's not just a what that we commit to, it's a who. It's not just we commit to walk in The rules, the law, the ordinances, the statutes, that all sounds very cloudy. That gets in the way of a relationship with God because we commit to a who, we commit to a person. The law, the word, that's Jesus. Jesus became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your commitment isn't to a certain set of agreements, a certain statements of faith. Your commitment isn't to rules to follow. Your commitment is to God himself. And it is wonderful that when you make that commitment, you can see a real transition in someone's life from talking about the rules, the its, and they speak about him, they speak about Jesus. And you see that even in the passage, in there, verse 29. And to observe, to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. He doesn't just stay as the distant, far-off creator, the rule-maker who you have to obey and fear. He becomes the Lord Lord. Our Lord. He becomes our Lord. And what do you think of rules and regulations? Do you think we've gone mad in this day and age with all the health and safety, with with all the written things, with all the code of practices that we have to operate to? What's your view of laws, of, of rules? Can you honestly agree with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Verses 41-48, can you say, May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise, that I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law, for ever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. Be honest with yourself. Is that how you're feeling about God's word? Because again, it's not about following a prescribed pattern. It's not about command and obey, or else there'll be trouble. God sets out these things because he loves us. He sets out the standard of perfection, of righteousness, so that we could see we needed him. We need Jesus. And it is wisdom to follow what God says. It is wisdom to ask him every day, how can I obey what you've said in your word? He's looking out for us. He wants what's best. Blessing comes from obedience. He wants the good stuff for us. And then as it says in Luke 24:44, this is a real great freedom for us as believers in Jesus. He said to them, speaking of Jesus, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. If you're thinking about Christianity, if you're a Christian still, have you realized that Jesus already fulfilled everything that needed to be done for you? You've not been set apart to God in order to keep all his rules. Israel realized pretty quickly that they couldn't do everything they committed to. And we'll see later in Nehemiah in a few weeks how everything they committed to here, you can guess, they didn't quite stick to. We're not as perfect as we'd like to be. We can't even keep our own rules that we set for ourselves, can we? We'll see some New Year's resolutions coming up in a couple of months, won't we? And I wonder how many of them we'll keep as we go through the New Year. But that is the thing we can trust. We can trust Jesus if you have faith this morning, if you're looking to someone to save you from rules. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about Jesus having already done everything that God needed to be fulfilled. And then it says in Philippians 2.8, He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus has already obeyed. That is the foundation for our commitment. That is the foundation for our obedience. We obey out of a love, out of a seeing that Jesus already completed that work. That's a finished work on the cross for us to live in the freedom of. And this sort of commitment does change how we look to the world, it affects how we interact. It said earlier about that idea of separation, that the people who committed to God was everyone who'd been separated, and that idea comes up again here in verse 30. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. God is talking here to his nation and and saying, if you're really going to commit to me, it has to be a wholehearted and total commitment you have to be able to say no one else gets my worship no one else gets my number one spot like you do God and so the problem here the reason why this is talked about so much in, in Nehemiah the idea that the people needed to separate from everyone else from the people of the lands isn't an idea of just a racial separation today it's not about being a certain from a certain country being a certain culture or race God's not interested in that It is a religious separation. The reason why God forbid it when when Israel entered the Promised Land to mix with the peoples was not just because they were different, it was because where they might lead them, it was because the other peoples didn't worship the God of Scripture. They had their own gods, they had their own idols who they, they paid homage and tribute to. So the reason why God would call us to separate is on the grounds of things that might lead us away from him. What could you say this morning, Is you, are you letting your heart intermix with, where have you let your heart intermarry with the world? It might not be people of the surrounding nations like the Israelites did, but you may well have your own idols, your own things which are stealing you away from God, having that total love, having that total commitment. And it does say there in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 16. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. It would be absolute profanity, it would be unspoken of for anyone to bring any idols into God's house back in Israel, back when Nehemiah was teaching. To have any kind of carved wooden silver gold statues of foreign gods, that would be absolute blasphemy in God's temple which had been separated for him. And so what are you allowing into your heart? Do you realise that mixing in any way God plus something, Jesus and something. He wants that 100%. He wants every part of you. So it looks different to commit to God. We should stand out as people committed to only God. And that also plays out in how we relate to people. Verse 31 says, If the peoples of the land brought wares of any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. The people see this need to recommit to the Sabbath, God's covenant with Israel that they should rest and do no work on the seventh day just as God had. And as an interesting side note, this is a great model for teaching, by the way. The people have just committed to obey all of God's law That's what it says in verse 29, to walk in all of God's law, all his commandments. And then they go on to be specific. They go on to name, we will keep the Sabbath, we will not mix with people. That is a kind of a new style of of Ezra-type teaching, to take the word of God, to bring it out, to draw out the specific focuses that need to um, affect the people of the time in their current circumstances. It's the way of updating the truth and bringing it out for people in their circumstances. So they're recommitting the Sabbath. And the reason why that's such an important thing in, in how it looks is because it's identity and its trust. No other nation at the time would take a day off from their work, from their regular activities to just sit in God's presence, to just worship for, a, for any other nation. And indeed, this was the temptation in Israel. They thought, they thought that's an extra day. That I can get work done, that, that I can trade, that I can make money, that I can plow and grow. So it was to stand out, was to recommit to the Sabbath. It was to look different to how other people ran their busy lives and to say, no, we can rest. And it was an important thing as well to trust God. As we see in verse 31, they also forego the seventh year's produce. That was a hard thing to do because it meant trusting God not only to provide for them for one year, for the year where they're not working the land, it actually meant three years, the whole year, before, during and after giving the land rest. So it's a big thing. We look different when we commit to Jesus. We have what the other people don't. We have a reason to rest and we have the best trust we could have in God. And that's picked up on in Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10 and 3. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Now we who have believed enter that rest. We're not saying that committing to God, committing to his church, means you now have to observe the Sabbath, you have to take a day off. It's a principle that it's a truth that Jesus is that rest for us. The work was finished at the cross, he said it is finished. Our eternal rest, which is so much better than just taking one day off a week, our our rest for all of time is in what Jesus has done for us and how God is happy and satisfied to call us his children if we've accepted Jesus' work for our own. So it looks different when we commit to God, people around us will notice but it also changes how we interact with the people in the church. As we see in the latter part of verse 31, it says we will forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Another important part of giving the land rest, of saying in the seventh year we won't work the field, an important part of that was so that the poor could come and pick up the grain, so that they would have something to eat. You leave it open for people to come and enjoy. Those bits, And the exacting of every debt as well, from the Old Testament, that was a specific command to let go of anything that you, had, you were holding a brother to, to release any money that they owed you, any work or service that they owed you. And interestingly, that, you weren't called to do that for someone who was a foreigner living among them. It was actually just people in Israel. So that should be our heart towards people in the church, in Jesus' body. If we've committed to him and his church, it changes how we want to love and forgive our brothers. And it does say there in in John 13, verse 34 to 35, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We want people to come to church and see a difference in the way we treat each other. We don't want people to come to church and see us pressing each other for the money they owed us last week for that coffee, for when they didn't pay for the meal. We want to look so different in the way we love one another. We want to love each other as ourselves, as Jesus has loved us. So that when people see the way that we interact with each other, they don't just think we're being biased towards people who believe the same stuff as us. We want people to see, wow, they really love each other as if they were one in body, in spirit. So we've looked at who commits and what it is we're committing to, but why don't we look perhaps a little more practically at what it looks like to commit. In verse 32 there it says, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And isn't that interesting, the change there from in verse 29 talking about God's ordinances, God's laws, God's commands, and here in verse 32 we have the people saying, we made ordinances for ourselves That's a translation that happens in your heart. That's a change that your spirit wants to bring out. It's not just saying, God has said these things, these are the laws we should adhere to, but taking those into ourselves, into our heart, and saying, I'm going to do this in response. I'm going to make ordinances for myself and commit to what God's asking us to do. And it was an important thing to give money. The church was very young at this stage the exiles had just come out from Persia. The temple had just been rebuilt. There wasn't much money or resources to go around. It was a big thing for the poor exiles to commit yearly, to commit regularly to giving that amount of money, that third of a shekel. It's a serious thing. It was very needed, it was very practical. It wasn't just, you should commit your money because that's a good thing, but it was they could see where their money went, they could see what it was Doing that it was paying for all the breads, all the offerings, all the sacrifices of all the special and holy days, so people could see that God was using what they had given, very visibly, very importantly, to be their sacrifice, to be the reason why they could worship God at the temple, to be the reason why they could approach him in his holy place. And on that note, I apologise as the admin, We're trying to get a budget letter out to you guys so that you can see very visibly where your money is going in our church. We're catching up and doing the best I can. We hope by the end of the year to get you out a budget letter. But does God just want our money? Is that the main thing about church? Is, oh, they just want your money, as some people might think. Let's see what 2 Corinthians 8 verses 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the motivation for our giving. That's the reason why. It's not to gain anything. It doesn't make us more holy, more spiritual, more committed. If you recognise that Jesus already gave up everything he could for you on the cross, He took his high place in heaven, the riches and the treasures of being by God's side. He left those behind to come and dwell on earth so that by his poverty we could become spiritually rich. We could become brothers and sisters of Jesus. That should be the spirit behind our giving. Now I know we have some committed givers in this church, so this this isn't servants saying, cough it up more, we need more money. We're asking you to examine the reason for your giving, the spirit behind it, the motivation. Perhaps you think you've got it sussed and sorted. You can show God your direct debit and say, I give, I give very regularly, I'm committed in that. Do you pray over the money you give? Is it out of your mind? Do you just think I've got that box ticked? Or do you actually care? Where's the love behind your giving? Where's the desire to see God extend the kingdom? Do you even think about how much you give, and where it's going, week to week. And importantly as well, let's look at Romans 12, verse 1, which says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, God isn't just interested in stuff and things, No amount of money, no amount of material worth could you bring to God, and could he accept and say, that's good, you've done a good job there. He's after so much more. God's after your whole life as a living sacrifice. He's after your body as a worship. That's the best thing you can bring to church on a Sunday. That's the best thing you can bring to to God, to the workplace during the week. It's not the stuff you have, but the heart that God's giving you. is your whole life and every bit of him, every bit of you as a sacrifice to him. So let's move on to verse 34, which says, We cast lots among the priests, the Levites and the people for bringing the wood offerings into the house of our God. This is interesting because they are observing something that wasn't explicitly commanded in the Old Testament. um, Leviticus did talk about the altar being constantly burning but the people thought about it they realized for that to be the case they'd need the wood god didn't say bring lots of wood all the time but they were seeing the need and they were rising to the challenge to meet it be the kind of servant be the kind of jesus follower who sees the needs in church and beyond in, in the family in the workplace who sees the practical things that need to get done even if no one's specifically telling you to do them search those out Commit to those. God wants to lead you in that way. And they, we see Israel here divvying up uh, who brings the wood offerings. By house, by family, they say each one will take turns bringing the wood to the temple. You know, in a sense, we cast lots every month for the rota, for the ministries, for the teams, for the worship and the AV and the kids. If you're not already serving, why don't you think about perhaps it being time to step up into a commitment of service for God, to realise that the burden falls on us, to make sure the church runs each week, and that you give people breaks by offering up your time. It only has to be once a month, but like the Israelites, we too can commit to bringing our offerings regularly. What does it say there in verse 37? We're speaking about all these first fruits, all these offerings, all these blessings that God gives. They say it goes to the Levites at the end of verse 37 there. It is important to realise that everything comes from God anyway, that he is the provider of all the stuff we have, of all the material blessings, of all the food we have. These people are recognising that, the idea of giving your first fruits is like saying before I even enjoy this, before I even use it for what I want to use it for, I'm going to set apart the first bit, the best bit, and say that's thanks to God, that's all thanks to his providence, and we're going to give that over to the people working in the church. It's like saying grace, it's like saying I'm just going to take a moment before I enjoy what God's given to remember and recognise he's given it. Sometimes it's as simple as God wanting some thanks for everything he blesses you with. But it's great that it goes to the Levites and they get the best bits and they themselves are tithing to the priests. It's a great thing to give, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you heard the phrase, we are blessed to be a blessing? God was giving richly to his church that they could give richly to the Levites in the church, to the priests in the church. Everyone had their opportunity to give. Just because the Levites themselves didn't have their own land, their own fruit that they could grow, didn't mean they were exempt from giving. Just because you work in the church doesn't mean you're exempt from offering and giving to God. It's a blessing to give. He'll make opportunity for that. And Jesus said himself, in Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It might have been a worry for the priests, for the Levites serving in the temple. It might be a worry for you, thinking, where are all the things I need going to come from? If God's expecting such generous giving from me, if he's expecting me to give him everything, where's the, where do my needs get met? But Jesus tells us not to worry. Our Father knows what we need. And if we're putting his people first, if we're committing to his church and his body, then he says all these other things will be added to you as well, no need to worry. Just to close with then, let's move finally to verse 39 and think about where is all this commitment going? We've seen who commits, what to, how, but you might be thinking, what's the point of it all? Verse 39, For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. Everything that the Israelites were working so hard to bring and commit, all the money, all the offerings, all the stuff, all the food, it was all ending up in the temple. It was all ending up where the articles of the sanctuary were, where the stuff of God's temple and and holy people were, and indeed where the singers and the gatekeepers were. As we think about where our commitment's going this morning, Do you realize that what we do on this earth has eternal significance? It stretches beyond just the blessing of seeing God's kingdom come here and now. It stretches beyond just helping people to know Jesus here and now. Everything that you commit, your stuff, your life, it has an impact on God's kingdom forever. It goes beyond this life. It says in Matthew 6 verses 19 to 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We sang that earlier, didn't we? Wherever you are, there is my heart. Don't think that all the things you're amassing, all the stuff God's blessing you with, is ending up in the wrong hands. Don't think that it's just sitting in a dusty storeroom waiting to be used properly. Don't think that all the charitable giving you do is being misdirected by corrupt hands and not being used to benefit God's people. Nothing you do for God is useless and everything you bring before him lay it up like treasures in heaven where God protects it, just like we sang in the song as well, this My Inheritance. And what a great thing to end on The summary of the whole chapter, and perhaps the summary of our lives, as Nehemiah recorded at the end of verse 39. And we will not neglect the house of our God. And I would challenge you to think about what it is that you will declare. What will you commit to not neglecting this morning? Is it something as simple as meeting together with God's people? Do you find it a struggle? Are you a bit flaky when it comes to making it on a Sunday? Do you feel like you need to commit more regularly to how you give? to serving, maybe even just personally to devotions, to time with God every day, to his word, to prayer. Maybe you even could commit to praying for those who God has placed in leadership above you. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that work. Join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for these truths that as you were moving your people, Israel, through the time until Jesus came. You are showing them and teaching them just how good it is to trust and obey you. And we can see that now in Jesus. We can see the fulfillment of all these Old Testament commandments. We can see how your church is being revitalized by not just the power of human hands, but you've injected Christ's Spirit right into your church. He is the cornerstone of our faith. And now everything we do, Father, let it be built on Jesus. Let his foundation have our have your house stand and we trust and believe that you are establishing your kingdom forever show us how we can commit to you and we trust you father when you say that nothing we do for you is useless bless us this day father and we love you jesus in your holy and precious name amen